Hello and welcome to the Comedian's Outlook. I'm Luke Anthony and for this episode I was joined by fellow comedian Louis Green. He is the last episode of the Glass Eye Comedy Trio but it's certainly not the least and it's a brilliant, brilliant episode. Just a massive thank you to Erin Jay and Danny Mark for doing the other episodes. They were phenomenal. I really enjoyed those two and we had some good feedback on social media as well. So thank you so much for that. But Louis Green... What can I say about Louis? He's, you know what, he's got this real likability about him. He's very, very positive. He's very bubbly and outgoing. And, and he comes across this this kind of happy-go-lucky, cheeky chap. And you don't realise that actually there's so much more to him and his personality than, than what meets the eye. And he seems to not necessarily hide it so well, but he looks so resolute and confident on stage that you don't know the background. You don't know what he's really been through or how it's really affected him. And in this episode, we get into that big time, which I'm sure will move you just as much as it moved me. As you remember from episode 14, when I had them all on together, he spoke about material and about how he didn't like writing and he struggled to come up with jokes and he just gets floods of creativity. And I think he's moved on so much since then. And also in this episode, we get onto that too. So have a quick listen to this. I'm, I'm a bit different to these guys. These guys are writing all the time, whereas mm. I have to have an idea. And like, but once my idea comes, all of a sudden I get a flood of stuff. I, would you agree with that? I think yeah. I write, I write in spats rather than okay. all like all the time. And it's probably the bit I struggle with the most. I think actually writing a bit. Yeah. Mm. Um, I, I am working on it, but like all, all of a sudden I'll be laying there and I'll, I'll think of a, a bit of gold, and then it will just unravel something, and then. So normally when I'm laying in the bath, believe it or not. Yeah. Yeah, and I'll get a bit of gold and I'll start going off on there and then all of a sudden he's like bombarded with jokes from me and I'm trying to get them to give me some approval. Sign off. <laughs> yeah. So there's Louis talking about how he came up with the material last year. I'm sure you'll learn a bit more about that in this episode too. But also, as Louis did in the episodes for Erin Jay and Danny Mark, they've both left Louis a quick message for him. Well, I say quick. Erin's wasn't so quick because he obviously forgot the briefing I gave him before I recorded the episode. But here it is. First, have you got a message for Louis? Have I got a message for Louis? What sort of message would you like me to give Louis? Just, just what would you like to say to him on his podcast? I would like to say to Louis that... Oh, you've put me on the spot. I told you before we started recording know, that we're going to do it. I know, I know, but I don't... We've had about an hour and 20 minutes to... What would I say to Louis for his podcast? <clears throat> I'd say, one, Louis, you're a good guy. And just know that everything you do in comedy, whether you're happy with it or unhappy with it, you will always make me proud to be your friend. Also, 30, yes please, in the box room at me mum's house. This sounds like this sounds like this is your life. The thing about Louis is I like, like I'm very grateful to him because he also pushed me right at the beginning to do it and he's been very supportive the whole way through. There's been some times where I've been on the side of the A14 in a label and I phoned him up and I'm like, Do I wanna do this? And he said, Don't be so fucking stupid. You can do it. Like and he's not just a great person to work with, he's a great friend. Great friend, and I'm very proud to know him. So some lovely words of wisdom there from Erin and, and Danny for Louis' episode. But do you know what? As the other episodes, this isn't just about the Glass Eye Comedy Trio. This is about a man who is a fantastic comedian, a brilliant MC, and just an absolute diamond of a person. So please welcome to the show, Louis Green. 
So, Louis, how's how's comedy going? Like, I, you know, obviously you mentioned on the other episodes with like Aaron and and Danny that you know we did we first did the the episode with the Glassside Boys together as a team. Now we've got you separately because you're all standing alone as comedians properly and doing your own gigs and that. Um, how are things going for you? I think things are going pretty well, to be fair. Um, I'm really happy. I had a massive year, uh, 2019. I worked extremely hard in 2019 and finished on 201 gigs. Um, I'm not a gig counter, but I was just intrigued to see how much I actually gigged last year. Um, I found myself on some magnificent bills and learned from some incredible people. And I think for me, like getting on them bills where I'm taking that next step to getting paid slots and stuff like that, and I'm getting quite a bit of M, um, paid MC work now. So it's it's quite nice. And yeah, it's, it's going in the direction I want it to go, which is like really key for me, to be fair. It's interesting because in that episode, both Danny and and Aaron pay, paid homage to your MC. In, and that was way back in, I think it was April. Yeah. Episode 14. And that's come on strong since, like even stronger. Like it wasn't like you were doing well at that time. It's just that you're now a very, very good MC. Oh uh, yeah, I kind of like the, the weirdest thing about MC, and this always makes me laugh, is the first time I ever did it was one of our first actual nights at Glass Eye Comedy, and I walked off stage and hated every second of it, and I swore that I would never ever do it again. But I've kind of just found a niche to it, and I think to be fair with the MC, and it's been like a huge part of building me as an act as well because I'm so comfortable now with the interactions and talking to people but like not just talking to people and stopping when someone says well I'm an IT technician oh boring comedy uh, cul-de-sac or I'll dig a bit deeper into all of that sort of stuff now and I feel confident to do that uh, so yeah MC has been massive for me like I love nothing more than getting that laugh on the spot rather than maybe something that's a little bit more scripted so I've got a goal that I want my MC and to be no material whatsoever I want to do just crowd work when I MC. That's my end goal. So, Where else are you with that? I think it's fair to say that I'm probably about 70% crowd work now. Um, I'm bringing, I am doing jokes before the X come on because, like, so, for, so uh, Ben Briggs, for instance, Ben Briggs is one of my favourite acts on the circuit. It's a phenomenal MC. And I MC'd a gig that I, I basically I turned up to watch and the MC was that hadn't arrived. So they asked me to MC it on the last minute and I wasn't prepared or anything so I got up and I just did a load of MC and, and Briggs was actually headlining that day and I came on stage and because I know how good of an MC he was I said to him you know what what should I do and he said the only thing that will improve you is go go on stage and have no material just go on stage with the mindset that you've got to make this work with no material and since that day I've tried my hardest to do that and I'm now I now think I'm at a point where about 70% of it is sort of me just playing around with the crowd and I also did a course as well um, which gave me enough sort of another sort of direction of emceeing so rather than sort of taking the mick out of the crowd love bombing them so being really nice to them and like making them the hero of the situation and I think since I've sort of amalgamated the two I've sort of found my own kind of way really yeah so. I mean one of the things I find that with going on with no material, because it's just going on stage anyway with your material, it's kind of like kamikaze mode. You know, you go on, and you, it's it's um, it can be very sort of degrading on your your self esteem, and and do you not does it not make you really nervous to go on with nothing and and hopefully get something out? Because if you get nothing out of it, 
you know yeah. what, what happens what do you do I think like the thing is you've got that material to fall back on yes that's so true. You, you have got that material to fall back on but it's about there is something funny I think it's Dara O'Brien that said something about find, find the funny uh, for four funnies before moving on and I kind of like it's just digging deeper into somebody's lives and not necessarily asking the usual questions I had one guy that was in a um, it was in a pub in Colchester and I was emceeing and I asked him and he said oh, I'm in insurance and before I'd be like oh no but instead I thought you know what I'm going to ask what insurance you're in so I turned around to him and said what insurance do you do and it turns out that he was in um, terrorism insurance and all of a sudden, out. we've got this extremely interesting subject to sort of to explore. And it, yeah, so now it's about asking for me the right questions, not necessarily have you got kids or, you know, where are your kids now? And just, just having that general chit chat and not worrying about that awkward silence. Um, that's, yeah, just growing that set, really. I know we are going to talk to you probably as a comedian because that's sort of first and foremost what you are. Yeah. Predominantly an MC in secondary, really. It just paid the bills a bit, I guess. Yeah, yeah, has you. Um, but when you're waiting to go back on after an act has been on and you've seen that they've they've died on the rass or, or the or not necessarily died on the rass but the, the the audience haven't really really been on board or they've been quite quiet, do you start working in your brain what you can do to to lift it up, lift that back up again, or do you just go straight back on and just just see what what, what works? Yeah, I, so I go on. I've got the mindset as an MC is I'm not there for anything else but to make the act's life as easy as possible. So I'll always try and if someone has died in their ass, then obviously I've got to have a little look at what's going to bring the room back up. So I might play a little game with the audience or if it's really bad, I might I might fall into a piece of material that I know will land like within the room. Um, but yeah, a lot of the time it's just about what I need for the next act, to bring the next act on really to make them have a bit more of a comfortable time, a bit of a cushion, that sort of thing. Um but yeah, as an MC, the other thing I think as well is there's a lot of pressure off when you're MCing because, or I certainly feel this, I'm not expected to be funny. The acts are there to 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 be funny, so it takes, almost takes a little bit of a pressure off me. Really, that's how I feel. Might be might be wrong. I'm, I'm not necessarily scared of not scared, but not necessarily hesitant about uh, dying in your ass or, or not being funny or or that sort of stuff. It's more the pressure of making it a good room for the comedians that yeah. I find more stressful. Is that if you know you haven't done a good job, you know, and then there's a direct correlation between that and the performances or the or the the laughing in the room. That's far more pressurising to me. I did a um, I did a gig in London, and it was painted as a very different gig than what it actually was when I got there. And I think as long as the comics know that you're attempting to make that the best you possibly can, yeah, I don't think there's much more you can do. I mean, this gig in particular in London. There was three people in the audience and a room full of acts who were just scribbling notes ready for their material. It, it was like I say, it was sold very differently. It was sold to me as a theatre gig, which is a strange one. But um, I tried my hardest to bring them, but they were polite laughers. They were nodding and stuff like that. It was it was difficult. It was difficult, but the acts knew that I tried my best to bring that room up. And it turns out that like the three people were having a lovely time. They just weren't belly laughers. They were just you know nodders really yeah so. yeah you just need you just need another 27 people to, <laughs> yeah. to to get a, a couple of laughs out of it yeah but you as a comedian how has that hurt because you know you obviously got you've got a real niche as i think to coin one of aaron's phrases in the last podcast with with emceeing but obviously you identify more as a comedian yeah and that's really what you want to be respected for and paid for yeah yeah definitely um 
I could, yeah, yeah, I do. I, I want to be a comedian. I don't want to be known as an MC, but I think MCing is also just such a useful tool. So, but I gig. I mean, I have a quota where I I feel that I have to gig fifteen times a month. If I haven't gigged fifteen times a month, I don't feel I don't feel very comfortable. Um, I feel like I haven't worked hard enough at it. I'm in a position where I can gig that much as well, which is quite nice. Um, so yeah, it, like obviously I do want to be known as an act, and I get booked as an act. Um, a fair amount now which is quite nice it's been a very difficult graft over sort of two, uh, 2019 through with things that I went through and stuff like that but I was yeah I do I definitely I want to be recognised as an act and I think I probably will be recognised as an act but like you say at the moment money's money so MCing is playing a big part so and nobody seems to want to be an MC either which is a really strange one but I love it Again, I think it's, it is that, that level of responsibility on the MC. But like you say, you don't have to necessarily be funny. You just have to get the right energy yeah. in the room and, and be, be and do material if you need to do material. If, if not, you don't necessarily have to. Yeah, I think I've, I'm quite lucky as well as an act because like I've got an energy about me when I'm on stage. And I've got this, like every quote you get back from a promoter always seems to say that I've got like a likability on stage. So, this is, so having that likability is... I'm quite lucky with that and with that high energy as well. I think I actually, I, I genuinely do think I'm quite unique on, I, I mean, I haven't come across too many comedians that have got a similar style to the way I act and the way I am on stage. So I think with, from that respect, I think like I'm becoming bookable. If you like, you are, you're not unbookable. You mean no, no, bookable. bookable yeah. <laughs> I'm quite bookable now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Also, just after, just around, just before the round of the time we recorded the other episode, you guys went up to hot water yep. at the time. And now, I know I've spoken to Jason since, and, and you weren't completely happy with your setup there, were you? I was to start with. Like, I, I thought, cool, cool, this is the best thing since sliced bread. And the venue is amazing, and I would urge any comedian to go up there if you haven't and do a set there. It's incredible. Uh, but the problem. I had is I now look back at that set and I'm very, very self-critical. So if I feel that... I, so I, I'll talk about writing process later on, but I'm, I'm very different to the way Aaron and Danny work um, when it comes to comedian. I, I record every single set. I listen back to every single set. I come off stage and I make notes of what worked. I look at off-the-cuff comments that I've made and I'm constantly trying to adapt that material um I, it's a very american thing but i'm trying to uh, four laughs per minute in my set so i'm constantly tweaking and changing and going over the same stuff and i know people get bored with it but i haven't got bored because it's still changing every time i do it do you see what i mean yeah so yeah yeah you're a typical example of <clears throat> typical spring of a fair word but you're a great example of of writing on stage like you're not a writer, writer like someone like Danny is or no. now Aaron is. You're more of somebody that sort of has your persona. Like like Danny said in his episode, you know, you have your bravado on stage, you have your, your persona and the way you want to present yourself on stage and your presence. And then you just got to find the funny bits whilst you're up there. Yeah, I, I never, ever go on stage with something that's fully written. I'll go on there with a concept and I'll talk through it. I, I, to be fair, Jason, Jason Stamps, exactly the same. And 
I think I'm, I was having a real good conversation with another fantastic comic called Ash Friff, and we were talking about how we'll start off with a ball uh, and we'll constantly get blue tack and we'll blue tack something onto that. And I think it might be Rod Gilbert's that writes the same way as well. So I've got that concept, but then when I'm going on stage, I'm almost fumbling through it to try and find the funnies. But I'm quite lucky because I've got that persona to be able to do it and that cheekiness and that likability, apparently. <laughs> the reason I raised the hot water video and the the recording you did was because I think Jason's done the same for me and I'm sure he's done it the same for you. He sent me his one of his early, early sets when he yeah, was doing yeah, yeah. one-liners and stuff. And I think his point was, or is, is that you can't define yourself by what you've done in the past. You'll One day you'll feel outraged by everything you did. Yeah, yeah. feel embarrassed by it or make you feel sick because you've done it. Um, so was that a turning point for you, do you think? Yeah, that was a, it was a mad piece of advice. Like watching... Jason pointed out something in my video that I did, which was obviously very much a nervousness or a nervous tick, if you like. I used to rub my chest with my left... So I'd sit there and just sort of rub my chest. And... Um, while I was on stage and I'd do it a lot and he said to me as a promoter that to me shows that you're nervous so it was something that I needed to change I needed to consciously stop doing whatever them ticks were and I always, I'm a firm believer that you're only as good as your last sort of three or four gigs as well so like you know I, I've had unbelievable gigs in 2019 I found myself in front of a thousand people um, at the UEA Freshers gig um, Reese James headline and it was it was unbelievable but that was four months ago now five months ago so I need people to remember me for what's next or what's what's coming up or what's just happened so yeah I, I do think like you do look back at your old stuff and you're outraged I quite often say to promoters like don't YouTube me I'll send you my latest videos because I've, I genuinely believe my hot water video is terrible now so and I also the other thing as well is I went through this stage of with the hot water stuff, I went up there going, right, I need to, the video's got to be as clean as anything, little to no swearing. And then I suddenly thought, well, why did you do that? Because that's not you. And having that realisation that you can be you on stage and say what you want and stuff like that, it's, it's what's beautiful about comedy, isn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. And there's also, why, why mislead someone? Because if they then book you and you do dirty stuff, they're going to be shocked by it. Yeah. It's, is setting your standard. You are who you are. And, and I think you're an amazing example of someone who, the person you are off stage and the person you, you there, there's, if you're talking in, if you're at a gig and you're talking to people, maybe the audience members or other comedians, it's very clear that you are just who you are and you go up and you tell the truth and you just, everything you say is, is from the heart and what you mean and how you feel. And I think that's, that's a real, I mean, I'm not going to try and compare you to the, the greats, but you are amazing, but it is, it is what storytelling comedy is and and um you your per you your comedy wouldn't be the same without personality whereas a lot of one-liners and things like that they're as good written down as they are said out loud yeah um i try to i've got a theory that if i want to be nice to everybody because i don't want people to walk away and go do you know what louis green's an arsehole because what's the point you know i don't want to be an arsehole to anybody i just like and also i remember that although i'm still only well not even two years yet i'm two years later on yeah, this week. Um, but I started wherever that person might have been. So just, you know, any advice I've given, why not pass it on? I just, I think comedy is probably the nicest market that I've ever sort of worked in, if you like. 
Although I don't see comedy as work because I love it so much, but it is essentially what it is. Um, but everybody just seems so nice and so like forward with like advice. And I've sat down with some absolutely fantastic comedians and they've not been shy to turn around to me and say, oh, by the way, why don't you try this? Or And I've tried it and it's worked. And I've been like, oh, wow, why didn't I think of that? It's that fresh eyes. But it's really weird that essentially you're in competition for spots with some of them but they're still willing to give you that little helping hand. And I just don't see the point of me not to like giving that to the next ones. It is, it is true that, you know, a really good example of it is um, Jimmy Carr. He might not be a cup of tea in terms of what he does on stage or his, his content he does, but he was the ultimate networker. I think, I think it was, I think it was Jeff um, Whiten again, who had mentioned it, that whatever, Whatever gigs he was ever at, even if he wasn't gigging, he'd be taking he had like a proper black book where he'd be taking down names, he'd be making notes about stuff, um, learning who's who. So he he really marketed himself as a person and made friends with absolutely everyone. And he was at the time when he when when he was sort of on the sort of the open mic circuit and stuff, he was terrible. Yeah, and he's, he admits it. But yeah. now he's obviously one of the biggest names in the world. So yeah, definitely. I think. Um... Hills Yago, I think it was her, Jago Yago, Jago. She runs Amuse Moose, doesn't she, Erin? Hills. Yeah, Amuse Moose. And yeah. that was her. Was yeah. It? yeah. And she was talking, and it was one of the first things I ever listened to. And it was like, remember everything about everybody. Because when you go back to them and they can't remember who you are, but you can pull a highlight up about something at that time, you remind them and then I suddenly go, oh yeah, you, you appear to have taken notice. And I am... These guys take the mick out of me, uh, Aaron and Danny, because I network, network, network. But it's got me to a point where I am now and I'm earning money doing something I absolutely love. So, you know, it's worked. I think I'd like to think talent's played a part of that as well. But <laughs> <laughs> Not at all, mate. Nothing about you as talent. Oh, oh gob. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things that strikes me about you is that you, you always come across as this sort of... Um, Always positive, always, always got a fight for everything. And before every gig, you're always going knowing that you're at least convincing everyone around you that it's going to be a great one. Are you as happy as all that, though? Are you as happy as that, that guy that's always that bubbly, cheeky chap that everyone sees? I think, like, going to the first part, I'd, I'd, I'd never get why somebody would go into something feeling like it might fail. So even when I go on stage with new material, I'm like, this is going to absolutely smash. The truth of it is it's probably not. But if, if I haven't got that mindset and my belief in it, then how can I expect the audience to believe in it as well? And also, like other acts around me, I, you know, they get. I, I do believe, I want everybody to smash it because I want it to be an amazing show. Because actually the most important to me thing to me about going into a show is that the, however many, whether it's 10 people in front of you or whether it's 10,000 people in front of you, they're going to walk away that night having an amazing night. And that's what's important we're a vital tool in that and you don't know whose life you're changing by making them laugh by by having that that positivity so that's yeah that's that's why i go into that sort of attitude but i i'm i'm okay now i had a i had i said earlier i had a very bad 2019 um I go for a divorce which i'm still sort of going through um i met somebody who through no fault of anybody's we had to part ways and I ended up finding myself in a place where 
I was in an extremely dark place, like depression had taken over, which was really odd because if you go back to two years ago, I probably would have told you I'm one of these guys that never suffered with any mental health or depression, anxiety. That would never affect me because I had this positive vibe about me. And um, I think it must have been about Feb, maybe February, February, May, some, uh, between February and May anyway, I got into a point where I didn't want to be around anymore. Um, yeah, I just, life had got a little bit too much for me. Comedy was probably the only positive that I had. Work was a struggle. Um, yeah, everything just got on top of me. And I, I'd planned a day where it was time to go. Um, without getting, to, this is getting deep now. But um, yeah, I'd planned a day where I was like, I'm done. I'd planned how I was going to do it. I'd got everything sorted. And I got a phone call that day from uh, Mr. Aaron J. And he asked me if I wanted to go shopping in Braintree Freeport of all places. And it snapped me out of it. It made me go, yeah, all right then. And all of a sudden, all them plans got put to the back burner. And I was probably the worst person to spend that day with. But Aaron had known that I'd been in a bit of a bad place. So I spent a day with him and... TJ, I went to TJ on Fridays and had dinner and stuff like that. And at that point, that's when I realised that after snapping out of it, that I needed to address what was going on in my head. I, but again, I didn't address it for a few months and a situation happened to me where somebody actually attempted to commit suicide in front of me. And that was, it was an absolutely crazy situation. But basically I, I saw somebody jump off a bridge when I saw that, I suddenly like snapped back into that bad place again. And again, somebody at work recognised at this time and they got me some counsel and stuff like that. And I went for a full course of CBT, which I is one of the most unbelievable things that I've ever done. And still to this day, that it was incredible. But when I went through all of that and I came out the other end, I suddenly realised that I'd actually probably been anxious the most of my life. I'd just normalised it and I'd bottled up and never spoke about it. But people around me had obviously seen it. But whenever they addressed it with me, I was like, don't be silly. I'm fine. I'm fine because that's what, you know, and yeah, I'm so, but I'm in a lot better place now. Don't get me wrong. I'm in like majorly better place and I've got tools to deal with the anxiety that I, stru that I do suffer with. Depression's been pretty good. Um, but yeah, it was just luckily having friends around me. And like I say, if Aaron hadn't have rung me that day, I may not have been here. So, And this was a result of... All of sorts. Of all sorts. Yeah, okay. of all sorts. So let's, let's, let's unravel that a little bit. Um, so often with, with a lot of people, um, such situations, such um, triggers happen. We, you know, this nat whole nature and nurture thing. Yeah. Um, often the surroundings and the environment that we grow up in or, or live in or the stability or instability we have as, as children moulds or manifests itself maybe later in life when, we, when we're when we faced as adults to deal with something serious, something yeah. traumatic, something hard. Do you think it was as, do you think it was something about your life early on that might have sort of been the early onset of it? Or? So, yeah, probably like the first sort of, the first 10 years of my life were pretty pretty sweet to be fair. Like mum and dad were at home and that, and mum and dad got broke up and got divorced. And I can sit there and I can I can pick, I can still remember being in the bath, dad walking in and saying, "You're the man of the house now." 
And I think I took that as such a pressure because I was the oldest brother and I don't know, it just built a massive pressure up. And my mum went through a real tough time of going through a divorce because she'd only just had a baby at this point. Um, my little sister, bless her. And uh, so they went through the divorce and I became a little bit of a tear away and ended up in foster care. So I probably had that kind of, not neglect, I, I felt neglected a little bit, but I, I kind of had this sort of situation where I felt unwanted and stuff like that. Well, the thing is with that is that as much as there are other reasons for, there could be other reasons as for them to have been pushed to that extreme, you know, obviously a, a divorce is a huge thing yeah. to go through on now, um, which is it's a massive thing to go through. But as a child or as a teenager, all you ever see in that situation is actually, you no know, just rejection. Yeah. I'm not good enough. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I kind of did feel that because it was, it was not, a, it was horrible to be fair. And I can, and I, I sort of jumped around a few foster homes as well. And it wasn't the greatest, it's not going to be a great experience for anybody to be fair. Uh, and then eventually my nan said that she'll take me and I went in to live with my nan and that wasn't a great environment either. Mm. So um, it was, yeah, it was just a difficult thing. And like, but coming through the foster care system and then coming out of the other end and, it kind of built a resilience in me as well and like a hunger. So I didn't want, I, I don't have any children at the moment, but I'm, I'm petrified of being a dad. I, I, I want to be a dad, but I'm petrified of it because I sit there and worry that, you know, what happened to me may happen to them, but that's not the way it works. Not always anyway, but I've got this real hunger that everything's got to be right. And I want to make something of myself. And I still don't really talk to my dad now, but the one thing I probably want more in the world is my dad to turn around to me and he's proud of me. And, you know, I'm, I, but I'm, I'm sort of coming to terms with the fact it was actually CBT that said it to me. I was constantly looking for this role model, this male role model that I'd been missing through my entire life. Um, the only real one I had was my granddad and I'll come on to him shortly. Um, but I was, and I was still looking for this male role model, even after sort of he passed away. And my CBT therapist actually said to me, there's a point in your life where you become that role model rather than you need one. And it's about how you paint yourself after that. And that kind of really made me realize that actually I don't need that role model. What I need to do is make sure that people see me as the positive role model now. So that was a huge thing for me. But like, again, like with the depressions and stuff like that, I went for a divorce, um, I had my granddad as well. My granddad was like, he was the one that got me into comedy. So we'd go around here at weekends and stuff and we weren't allowed to watch cartoons. So he would sit me in front of the TV watching things like Morecambe and Wise and still to this day, two of my favourite comics on the planet. But watching them made me grow this love for comedy. And he, I kept saying, you know, I'd, I'd be funny, I'd be good at that, I'd be good at that, but never had the balls to do it. And then when he passed away, obviously that was another thing. I'd love just I've lost another like pillar in my life. Do you know what I mean? And so when he passed away, I just thought, you know what, I'm going to give it a go. And I, I actually think that comedy probably suppressed the depression a little bit as well because of how good I was feeling. Like it's like a drug, isn't it? You get on stage, you get this high, and feeling that for me was it probably suppressed the depression for a little bit longer. Also. Also with comedy, there is a like, and even like, obviously the glass eye comedy guys and and people like Steers and and Jake Steers is been on the podcast and is that camaraderie that you 
you for most of your life or most of your sort of teenagehood you felt that you hadn't belonged anywhere because you've been rejected yeah. and and that you you didn't you you felt like your parents didn't want you but then when you enter a world where everyone's so supportive like you said earlier you you finally you're not just that misfit in school anymore you are you are somebody that means something to so many yeah. people and what you're doing is making people happy yeah school was another big part it probably played a massive part in it as well because when I was at school there was so many people that tell me I'd fail I had one teacher tell me I was going to end up in prison now how, how do you say that to a kid an impressionable kid as well high school years you're so impressionable and I and this one teacher turned around to me and said I was going to end up in prison I actually wrote a joke about it in the end but so yeah you're right you do have this rejection and i'll be honest with you i love my mum to bits now like me and my mum we have a fantastic relationship she's hugely supportive i'm back living with my mum and like without her i probably wouldn't still be pushing on the way i am because she's constantly like she's at my shows she's a real good laugh and i do i love her i absolutely love her to bits and i don't for one minute blame her for putting me in foster care i don't blame her for that at all and if she does listen to this i just wanted her to know that but you're right, that it's that level of rejection that you feel. And coming into comedy and meeting people like Aaron, people like Danny, people like Jake, all of a sudden I've got this second family that when you do have a wobble, they're putting your arms around you. And you're in this, I always describe it as a chain because, and we're all linking arms. And if you your legs go, you've got a fairly few, you've got a fair few people alongside you that will hold you up. And I, th- I think that's a good little uh, trailer for what it's going to be like when you're 70 years old. <laughs> <laughs> when your legs go. Yeah. yeah. Simmer frames. Yeah. Me, me, Jake, Aaron and Danny in the same bloody care room. Can you imagine it? <laughs> yeah. It's quite a, an emasculating thing to go through depression and to speak, to, to admit, to even to yourself, when you say you need a role model, role model and you become that role model, when that role model becomes weak, it's really debilitating. I found with yeah. mental health. How do you how do you come to start talking about that? To be honest, that was actually Rich's podcast that made me realise it was okay. Um, and the other thing as well is like one of the things that we had drilled into us as a kid is crying's a negative thing. It's always been associated with something that's negative. Um, you told off, you cry. I don't know. When I was a kid, I'd get slapped, slap. You know, for being naughty, you'd cry. Your dad or your mum would turn around and say, "Will you stop crying?" It turns out that actually crying is just an emotion that we that we res- that is something it's a response that we do. Now I'm a big wuss now. I never used to cry at all, but like now I know it's okay to cry. And people on Rich Wilson's podcast going, "Oh yeah, I cried," you know, and just hearing other people who you look up to say it's okay to cry after all these years, telling like suppressing so, it, yeah, suppressing it and showing like it being a negative thing realizing that that is positive to be able to show your emotions and it's not you're not any weaker for showing your emotions you're not uh, you know it's not like you say i don't know it just yeah when i see a man cry if anything i i gain a lot more respect for them yeah definitely um you know if you admit you're not okay and you want to have a cry cry because it i used to love this quote it's a bit a bit corny but um tears cleanse the windows of your soul yeah I've, yeah i've heard that before it's I just like we spoke about him a couple of times, but what Rich is doing, I don't. I, I hope Rich realizes the good he's doing in the world. I think he gets told it enough, often yeah. enough. Um, he's he's an incredible person, and and he's a great example of 
someone who lost their way. Yeah. As a person and as a as a, a I think it was I'm not sure if he was married, but it's certainly in a he was married once and he was divorced. I think he's a divorcee. And he's got his only child, a uh, son. Um, but yeah, he's someone who's cheated, lied, you know, done bad things, fought, had fights. And he's come out the other end. Yeah, definitely. You know, and and I think it's that honesty that he has, and he just submitted everything that he's done. He said, "No, this is this is who I was, and this is who I am now." It's gained him that respect, and obviously, he's just one of those incredible listeners that just seems to absorb stuff and then and then allow people to just just to get everything off their chest. You yeah. know, it's, it's incredible. I, I I say to everybody now, like, just go just go and talk to somebody. If you're feeling low, talk to somebody because it's surprising how much of an impact that can have. Like I say now, I, I, I've probably, I think Aaron and Danny will probably agree with me that I I don't overshare, but I'll discuss things with them that I would never have discussed in the past because I've realised it's okay to share that. And I think like everybody, not just men, but I know there's a big emphasis on men at the moment, but everybody, go and talk about your issues. Do you know what I mean? Because it will make you feel better. And it certainly made me feel better. And it's, like I say, 2019, without the gigging and the support network that I had from comedy, because what people don't realise is like, Aaron J, Danny Mark, although Danny was my friend before comedy, they've had, they've been that support network. So, yeah, if I didn't have them all in place, I probably wouldn't be here now. And that's the truth. I was so low. But, yeah. Does it impact your? I mean, I'm just trying to imagine, like you going through that depression at the time. Uh, you said between February and May 2019, yeah. um, where you were going to end it. But you're gigging around that. You're going on stage, making people laugh. Yeah. You know, you're 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 doing something really really positive, but inside you're just eating yourself up. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I was. I, Def, Eminem, one of the bit, Eminem says a line, and I think it was spot on for me at that time. And it was um, hiding behind the tears of a clown, and I just sat there thinking, Do you know what? That's so accurate because I was driving to all these gigs and I went everywhere, literally mm. everywhere, and I was almost doing it with the hope that I'd made somebody else's day that little bit better because then that turn, I'd feel better for a few hours. It will only be a few hours. That is literally the only reason I kept gigging was because hopefully somebody in that crowd was having a, not hopefully they were having a shit day, that's the wrong way to put it, but hopefully I was making their day a little bit better. Do you know what I mean? So it was kind of like, I, I almost got addicted to gigging, really. Yeah, because well, yeah. it's like, like you say, it's a drug. It's the, you know, some people choose hard drugs to get over their shit, but you chose something that's good. Not yeah. necessarily always good for you, but um, it's great. It's you know, making people laugh. That's the best feeling in the world. Yeah. So now you you've you've come out the other side of that. I do you think you could stay positive and not be depressed without comedy? I think so. I went to like I said when I did the Freshers gig, and I went on stage and I was very anxious and stuff like that. And I've got a breathing exercise that I now do on stage to calm them nerves and stuff. Before not on stage, I'd be weird. Wouldn't <laughs> it? Uh, but before I go on stage, I've got these breathing exercises that I do and. Um, it's funny because when I do them, I'm not ashamed to do them, so I'll do them in front of other um, comics. Mm. And I've had comics come up to me and go, are you all right? And I'm like, yeah, I'm just getting ready. And they're like, oh, okay. So like, I've got these techniques that help me. But when I was at this Freshers gig, I was extremely anxious because it was the biggest crowd I'd ever done. And I had no right being on that bill. But I was on there. 
and I had to perform. And when I came out, I sort of had this biggest rush and I came off stage and I just, I cried. I like, I can't explain the emotion that I felt, but I cried. And it was Reese that came up to me afterwards and he was like, that means you want it. And I suddenly thought, yeah, I do. I, I want this more than anything. And the only person that can stop me from having this is me. And that's the way I see it now. So I, I don't think like, although I still have anxiety attacks, I know how to deal with them now. I've got the tools that I didn't have prior to this. So I, I feel like I could stay positive because it was like the anxiety was what was driving the depression in the end. I, I, and that's how it felt to me. And I've also like within the therapy that I had, I dealt with my granddad's death. I, I've I dealt with, I spoke about my time in foster care. I spoke about all sorts, all sorts of stuff that doesn't sort of like need to be aired. But being able to release all that, I've opened this box and realised that the worst thing you can do is suppress it. So now I don't do that anymore and I can now be a lot more positive about all of that sort of stuff. And like I say, when I gig and the amount of people that will come off and go, oh, you know, you've really made me feel that much better. And that's that bit. I don't care about the applause breaks. I don't care about all of that. That's the fact that one person in that audience has been, you know, their days been made better by something I've said. And that's probably the best feeling in the world. Absolutely. And do you think that your comedy has improved because of this newfound stability with it. I, I, what made me laugh about my comedy? Um, one of the, and Danny will like agree with this. I Hopefully, was, the jokes, but yeah, yeah. One of the, um, so I started off with I was very much a performer. I could go on stage and I don't know. I could just seem to garnish a laugh. Um, but I was a terrible writer. Terrible, terrible writer. And um. I think this, and I, I still believe I was a terrible writer up until the point where I finished the CBT therapy. And then all of a sudden I had stuff I wanted to talk about. You know, I wanted to address the fact that I'm a working class male that's cried or I wanted to address the fact that I've dated outside my social class and it was a difficult situation. I've, you know, I feel like there's things that I want to write about and my show for Edinburgh, when it gets there, and I'm going to, and I'm not rushing this because I'm not, this has got to be perfect, but it's all going to be about the resilient child that's come out of the other end um, and turned into the comedian. So I've got something that I want to talk about, something that drives me now. And since then, it's kind of just, it's almost unlocked the floodgates for Ryan and my Ryan's improved immensely since then. Is that clarity? I think? think it is. I think it's probably, like with the anxiety and the depression and all of that sort of stuff, there was probably so much that, I don't think my brain just had the f the chance to sort of go to full flow. Mm. And now I've, I'm, now I'm understanding of all of that. All of a sudden I can write. Do you know what I mean? And I've got, like I say, I've got, I've got such a good support network as well with people that I can try jokes with and things like that. But yeah, I definitely think clarity is probably the key to what's unlocked it. Because I, I get, I get anxiety quite, not regularly, but I do. There are times, often, sometimes it can just be like the, the preparation for a gig where I'm, I'm thinking about new stuff and because of like the same sort of mentality you have, everything has to be perfect. And then knowing that you might be ill-prepared, well, this doesn't work, what does that do? Everything just runs through your head and it completely cripples your writing process when you're trying to come up with ideas and you're trying to find funny bits in stuff you're writing. It's almost impossible when you're anxious because everything... You, I mean, I don't know if you find this, but when you write something, you're like, oh, no, but someone could get offended by that. I can't write that. And then you get everything everything about everything you do there could be anxiety attached to it you're like oh why this why that and it's just it's so exhausting 
Yeah. Well, I think I agree with that. I, there, the other thing as well is there was like, after I finished my CBT, it unlocked a little bit about me as well because I used to be very much, I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to offend anybody. And I think that's probably why my jokes were so lazy and so ill-written's oh, Ill tough because they were still getting laughs, but they weren't in the depth that they could have been. So I then went for a stage of going really dark and just writing this horrendous material that was funny but offensive to everybody. And again, it was Jason Stamp that turned around and went, you don't need that. You do not need that type of material. You will stand out without doing that material. So I, I then sort of reverted back to me, but I was a little bit less cautious about what I was writing. And like, you can offend somebody by saying, why did the chicken cross the road? You know, oh, well, I quite like chickens. Do you know what I mean? You, we can offend anyone about anything. Comedy's about being able to get on stage and people come to see you because they want to hear that alternative that naughtiness that whatever it might be that things that you know Jim Jeffries is one of the best for it he he said that what he thinks is funny to say is not necessarily what he thinks is funny and I think that's great it's it's very very in line with quite a few sort of what people call outraged comedians now but it's that thing of like it's the circumstances around a concept that are funny. It's not necessarily not famine and death and stuff like that isn't funny no. in its face of it, but the circumstances running up to it or surrounding it can be funny. And the trouble is with it is if you don't joke about these difficult things, these these things that were these taboo subjects or the things we don't like talking about, then the only time we ever talk about them are in debates. Yeah. In a negative environment. Yeah, definitely. Rather than actually in a positive environment and learning how to laugh at ourselves and learning how to laugh at our prejudices or our, our um, you know, because we all have prejudice because it's built into our culture. The reason why the UK is as it is now is because for decades and decades and decades running up to now, things have been taught through the way everyone's lived. So it, it's, of course, it's going to feel, feel through. Of course, people like Rich and yourself and, Aaron and Danny's um, and our our generation are going to struggle with certain situations just because we've been fed the opposite side for so long. And so, but if we can learn to talk about it and laugh about it, like Sadia Razmat, brilliant comedian, yeah, she does stuff that the 10 years ago would never have been allowed in any club, right? Or 20 years ago, maybe. But now she's, it's, it's everyone's crying of laughter and they're often the wrong people that are laughing at them. You know, it could be the right wing of people laughing at the stuff she's talking about. And it's, it's, it just shows how far we have come. I think like a big part of it as well is, again, it's the angles. We, I think we spoke about it in our last time we met. We're laughing up rather than laughing down and stuff yes, like that. Yes, yes, yeah. And I, I like, I really enjoy leading the audience down a, a path and then all of a sudden switch into a completely white, different one that they weren't expecting. And I know that's like what they say is the sort of like, the underlying rule of joke writing but I, I quite often do it with subjects now yeah so, definitely yeah yeah you're on the wrong side of it slightly and yeah and that's the funny bit because they're expecting you to say something else yeah or flipping that on his head and actually saying what they're expecting again that can be shock as well yeah that's quite nice yeah and the other thing as well is like with my writing I'm now starting to write about my experiences because before I'd write about they always say that 30% of comedy is real well actually with me to start with nothing was real it was things that I made up in my head, which is probably why it wasn't that good, which is probably, and now I'm starting to 
like include a lot more truth because I'm not embarrassed of my past, it seems to be coming out a bit funnier. So. It's because you're come, come, you've come to terms with it though. Because if if someone was really, I mean, I'm sure it might be partly raw, but if it was really raw and you could barely even think about it, let alone talk about it, then it certainly wouldn't be funny because they'd see through it. Because yeah. because you're an honest comedian, and the way you present yourself is is you know you are who you are, and you're going to take it or leave it. You know, people can see through that, and they know if something's bothered you or not. So, I think there's a testament to your resilience there's a testament to just your just your hunger like you said and your sort of undying desire to just be the best you can yeah I mean like for me like the only important thing for me is it, I don't ever want to come to the end of it and go I didn't make it because of me okay and when I say make it I mean have it as a job that's all I I don't the stardom and all that sort of stuff if that comes that comes probably won't let's be honest but you know, I, if it does, I want. If it doesn't, then I don't want it to be because I didn't try hard enough. So I think that's just really important for me. I, I love what I do. If it means that I'm not going to make a living off it and I end up being an open micer for my entire life, I'm still going to do it because it, I love it. So I'm going to talk to him in about ten years' time and just see if that's still true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll be like that. I won't talk to you for the entire ten years. I won't see you again until it just turn up ten years later. Time. Do you remember? Yeah, yeah. I mean, hopefully, I won't be an open micer all my life. But if I am, then <laughs> this bit is only been said in case of bookers listening. Yeah, to this yeah. Um, I'm very bookable, as we established earlier. I think. Um, yeah, I think to be fair, my CV's growing quite well, so I'm happy with that. Would you be able to explain your breathing technique before you go? Like the last thing you do before you go on stage is a breathing. Yeah, technique. yeah, it's really simple actually. Um, so I'll put my hands on my chest um, and I'll breathe in for four seconds, but expanding my belly, not my chest, and then and that's in through my nose, and then I breathe out through my mouth for seven seconds. And when I do that, it just centers me, it calms me down, it relaxes the nerves and stuff like that. Because I've got this weird thing that I'm really excited all day for a gig. And then I'm fine, and I'm just like buzzing. And then all of a sudden, when the next the act before me is on, I'm like, "Oh shit, I got to do this," and I suddenly get this anxiousness and these these nerves. So the breathing technique sort of pulls me out of that a little bit. What do you zone in on at that point when you're breathing? Just close my eyes and just it's me. There's no one else in the room. I've just got to go on there and do my job. And do you think about the counting of that, or the the, the sound of the breath, or, or it's just it? it's like it's just the breathing, really. I just like I try and concentrate on the breathing. It's really important that breathing gets deep in, into the belly rather than the chest because I, I don't know why. That's just what they told me. Okay, but it works. Trust me, and it just clips me this clear head. And since I've been doing that, I've I'm so much more relaxed on stage, definitely. And like I say, I'm I'm getting on some good bills now, you know. I'm on bills that I never really thought I would be on for five, six, seven years. And being on it, I, I genuinely believe it's my journey and how hard I've worked that sort of got me there, really. But it feels like your hardships or the, the, the difficulties that you've had have completely and utterly been almost, almost like a, a springboard because of what you're robbed of as a child and on what you've been robbed of in the last year or so in the divorce and all those bad things that happened to you seem to have only been converted into into um i don't know just motivation yeah they have and like when when you say things i was robbed of the only thing i was really robbed of was a was a like a, a 
male role model, sorry, which is what I was looking for all the way through. Do you know what I mean? My mum had no choice but put me in care. I get that now. But, it, you know, it's things like my dad leaving and, and like having my granddad as a solid, but then him passing away. I was constantly have feel, I constantly felt that I needed that role model in my life. So that was the only thing. But when I, like I say, and I think even right up until the CBT therapy, I, that was when I realized that actually losing my granddad, yes, it was a negative, but all of the things that he'd taught me had prepared me to, to be the, mo- the role model that I'm trying to be now. Yeah, they say they say success only finds you when you're ready. Yeah, you know, and so can you so, hurry up then? <laughs> so, yeah, well, are you talking to success or to me? <laughs> success. <laughs> <laughs> All right, mate. Um, so you, you, like you said, you, you're getting on pro pro bills. You, you know, you've you've come on strong. I mean, you've you've earned the respect from your peers and and like, like you guys said, like Danny said, you know, you've you've got Jade Adams closing one of your nights and so everything seems to be positive and going well yeah definitely and what what more do you want what what oh that's a big question glass eye for me i love glass eye i genuinely do my main priority is being an act and glass eye i love it and i will always be part of it and i want glass eye to keep growing because it's amazing and stuff like that but for me what i want is to make it as a pro comic to have that as my job, that's what I want. If it, and again, like I said earlier, there's only one person stopping that, and that's me. So that that's my end goal. That's it. You know, glass I will keep growing. I've got no doubt about that that's going to become a brand. But for me, my personal goal is to become a pro comic. And and what sort of stuff have you got planned for like this year to, to try and manifest that? So I'm still hitting my 15 gigs a month quota. Um, works out roughly 180 gigs a year which is sort of a good number really to keep progressing um, my aim by the end of it so every year I, I set myself three goals uh, last year was to be on the same bill as the TV um, act it was to perform in front of a room of 100 people and I can't remember the other one <laughs> to, uh, to have a solid 10 to sol- okay. a solid yeah, 10 yeah, by the end yeah. of the year and I achieved them they're all quite achievable sort of goals so the other thing as well is um tim mincham said that don't get distracted with the long-term goal because you'll miss all the shiny bits and like in the peripheral vision so i'm always trying to make sure my goals are achievable and baby steps so this year i want i want a four laugh per minute 20 uh that potentially i want i want to open a pro bill if i can and I want to do Edinburgh, so not, not yeah, not a show. Just go up there and experience okay, it. Okay, yeah. So um, I'm already off to Berlin this year. I'm in Berlin at the end of May, doing four gigs over there. Is that so cosmic, the, cosmic, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think I've got another one. At, I can't remember the other, the other club, but I've got another one. Um, but yeah, I've got four gigs in Berlin, so I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, they're, they're my goals this year. I want to, I want a solid twenty. I want a four laugh per minute twenty. So brilliant. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me, Lou. Yeah, no worries. Thank you. So that was Louis Green. What a lovely episode. What a lovely man. I absolutely loved doing that episode and I learned so much. And I do you know I have a huge amount of admiration for him because he continued throughout that difficult time he went through, he continued to do comedy and continued to entertain other people and to make them happy and, and yeah, it's such a 
such an amazing thing to do, you know. To make someone laugh is incredible. But to be going through all of that at the same time is huge. But that concludes the uh, Glass Eye Comedy Guys. I'm sure I'll have them back on again in the future. But a huge thanks to Aaron J, Danny Mark, and of course, for this episode, the amazing Louis Green. All the ways you can follow Louis, follow Glass Eye Comedy, and follow me are all in the show notes. Go and check out their comedy nights in Suffolk. They are fantastic. They're brilliant. They always have some great acts on, and they're equally brilliant acts themselves. Thank you so much for listening, and speak soon. Hello, I'm Luke Anthony. Do you love hearing about the stars, careers, lives, and mental health? Well, Meet the Stars is a brand new podcast all about that. Join me every week from Wednesday the 2nd of December for an excellent conversation with a different star each episode. Simply go over to members.starevents.online to become a member, which gives you exclusive access to every episode and so many other brilliant features just for you. See you there.